Hi, it's Rick Madison, Rick and friends. And uh, you know what? We have a variety of different guests on the show. And and this one is, uh, well, it's in a different space for some, which is social enterprise. And uh, when you find someone who's, you know, a managing director, co-founder of an organization, and uh, a very good friend of mine, Jude Brunt, is is part of that organization. I start to think, oh my gosh, I got to get this guy in the show. So, uh, welcome to Andrew Greer, who is uh, part of Purple. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rick. Happy to be here. So, Purple means what? It stands for purposeful people. Gotcha. Okay. So, when we talk about purposeful people, and and again, I want to make sure that you know we we understand the context. So. Let's just go into the history of, of where Purple came from, why it, why it came into being, because, you know, obviously you, uh, you were a big part of that. So why did it come into being Purple? Uh, really, I, I was spending time in community, volunteering, participating on boards. Um, I actually joined the Big Brothers and Sisters board after you were part of, I think you were on the board as well. President, yeah. President. And that's a good example. You start to start learning in the social sector and see, oh, there's really big challenges to work on. And I kept running into situations where the revenue model was getting in the way of continued progress on the social issue that this, that organizations are working on. And so I, I really got into purple to focus on social enterprise development, to really see if we could bring a sustainable revenue model into organizations who were focused on social issues or environmental issues and allow them to keep working on that in a sustainable way because the revenue model was also sustainable. Because most organizations have a really bumpy revenue model that are working on social challenges. It's interesting because uh, taking us back to Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Okanagan, there was um, a challenge one with Bowl for Kids Sake. So it's a well-known fundraiser. And uh, our executive director at the time came to me and and said, listen, we got to look at Bowl for Kids as, as far as not doing it. And I said, well, wait a second, it's a big fundraiser. And she goes, well, let's just let's just break it down to true accounting. So we do this amount of promotion, the entire office flips on its head for, you know, a month leading up. We're making all these phone calls. It's getting us away from our initiative, which is looking and really mentoring children. And, and for the most part, it it makes this much when you do the true cost accounting of, of staff members and office and admin and everything else. And, and I was blown away by that because from my standpoint, you do a fundraiser and you think, okay, we're going to make money off of a fundraiser but in actual fact it took us away from our direction and it and it really fundamentally did not help the organization i mean it's profile and mm-hmm. those things are good but when you do actual cost accounting it was it was far different so i i kind of get where the social enterprise comes into play yeah it just like fundraising it's not a panacea of change for organizations to add customer for, in the nonprofit sector to add customer revenue. It doesn't work for everyone. Certainly not every social enterprise model is, is successful. Um, but in, in principle for a nonprofit, what it does is adds customer revenue model 
uh, adds customer revenue into their revenue mix just creates a little bit more of a diversity of revenue so that they're less dependent on one stream or the other. Um, so that's kind of the ethos behind it in the nonprofit sector. And then if, if we uh, include or shift over to for-profit, uh, not leaving aside co-ops and other hybrids, but if you ship, shift over into for-profit, it's a little bit different uh, thinking in the for-profit sector when you consider social enterprise. And generally, it's, it's elevating the purpose part of the company, not getting away from driving revenue through the organization, but it really is creating primacy of the social or environmental purpose as opposed to it being an afterthought or a side gig or corner of desk or you know traditional corporate social responsibility play it really drags that impact right into the center of the operations so when you when you're speaking because you just mentioned uh for profit so does purple work with for profit as well to to really engage them and, and make sure that you know if you do have a cause or a passion or something that's that's important to their organization that they can figure that out as part of their ethos and and really try and make sure that it doesn't distract from their business but it actually enhances, adds to their business enhances yeah yes definitely uh, we we about 20% of the organizations we work with are for profit um, a good example up in Kamloops is called friendly composting it's a for-profit composting company, and they focus primarily on enabling composting in commercial operators, like multifamily residential, restaurants, pubs, um, big office buildings where municipalities don't do compost programs. And social impact, in their case, is environmental impact, is really deep. It's central. It's why they started their company. And you can't get away from it. And the, the work with them is uh, really about narrowing in on their impact focus as opposed to trying to do all things for all people mm -hmm. and ensuring the financial model actually supports the impact model and vice versa. That's the key, though, I think, is is when you get into, into the business, sometimes it's tough to read the label on the outside and it's, and it's really tough to have an objective view on, okay, we do want to do all these things, but then you probably try to distill it down into, okay, no, we need, we need a very finite direction here. In other, in other words, for you to be this for the world or the, its impact, we do need that financial modeling to, to really balance that out. Because I think a lot of companies, they get caught up in that altruistic side, which is, I want to give this back, but they don't fundamentally have that accountant bookkeeper in the, in the side whispering in their ear going, okay, but, but let's make sure we're on solid footing here. Yeah, it's critical. It's critical for any organization. doesn't matter if it's like incorporated as a for-profit, non-profit co-op, that financial sustainability is a bedrock and, as as a true social enterprise, your your revenue model should be a mix. Um, for profit companies can get grants just like nonprofits, but they're coming from different places. And for profits get customer revenue, and so can nonprofits. 
and co-ops are are typically organized from the start to have some sort of uh, customer revenue built in as well. So what, so we have the the Camloops organization, which we've heard about. What would be another success story that people may not know about that uh, is is gaining notoriety based on the fact that they have a massive social impact in their it's actually helping their business. And do you have another example of something like that? As a for-profit or a mm. non-profit? Either one. Um, so let's talk about a few examples. Really topical, yesterday, uh, Patagonia, the founder, Yvonne Chouinard. I read his book. There you go. Let My People Serve. Yeah. There you go. Yesterday, he gave 100% of the non-voting shares of the company to a charity. What? So the terms of it wow. are uh, that the, the, the company will still run, Patagonia as it is will still run. All of the profits after sort of reinvesting into the company uh, will move into this charity uh, to be used for environmental conservation and activism and that sort of thing. The... Voting shares of the company stick in a, are stuck now in a family trust so that the family can keep the vision and values of the company. Sure. And that's a really good example that the governance model has completely changed. There is no way for it to be a, a company now where the primary activity is to, you know, put money in the hands of the shareholders. And it really is owned by the community. And, and it's when, when I think of Patagonia and, and the reason why I have a shirt from Patagonia was because of that book where he was talking about a uh, um, very interesting fellow, but he was talking about his explosive growth in his company. And he, he saw the strain it was creating on his company and, and him and his employees. And he said, listen, this, we are going to cap our growth at 5% every year. And a lot of people listening to this, business owners especially, are going, what are you talking about? But he found that growth was actually counter to what a lot of people think. Businesses do need to grow, but they also need to grow sustainably. And he, mm -hmm. was, he was a big advocate for that. So that all aside, but for him to do that on a on a level of that, because we are talking about- $100 million a year in profit they expect to be distributing- <sighs> into community because of this change. So why, so let's just dive into the, the psyche of somebody like that. So mm -hmm. here, here's someone who's obviously, you know, I, I really do believe he's, he's work. He's got a company that people really rally around. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a great product. It's well, um, I have a Patagonia shirt that I think if you, if you wear it out, you can go back into a Patagonia store and then they'll we'll, repair it. They'll repair it like mm -hmm. that. That's the kind of thing that's happening. And again, a company for profit is going, no, no, we want a life cycle of that product of about two or three years. And then we want it to disappear so they can buy another one. But Mr. Schwinnard is going, no, 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 <laughs> that's not great for our planet. Mm -hmm. So he's that kind of person. But but the psyche of being able to go to your, I, I would think ostensibly to a board of directors or somebody and saying, here's what I'm going to do would create shockwaves across his organization. And it would fundamentally um, create his mark in the world. Like, I mean, I, I, I do think that. So talk about the psyche of, of giving on that level. And again, 
you don't have to give a hundred million to make an impact, but talk about the psyche of that. Yeah. So I, I think that's an important uh, distinction. It's not about giving. This is about impact first, all the way through Patagonia. As an example, impact is baked in right from their suppliers. They go deep into their supply chain to make sure the suppliers are respecting the environment. They have changed and dropped suppliers in their shipping, in their what your, your example of returning shirts to them for repair. All sorts of things really drive impact like straight from the core. So this isn't about giving back. This is about central every day, right in the, in the workings of the organization. And so the psyche behind that, or let's call it the movement of people who want to do things like that is growing rapidly. A third of startups now globally have impact baked into the core of their operations, not as a, as a side gig, not as a corporate social responsibility play. This is central to the, the function of the organization. Um, here in Canada, like the data is, is kind of messy or inconsistent, but a few other indicators of the movement, um, Canada has the, the second largest nonprofit economy in the world. There are 2 million people employed in the nonprofit sector in Canada, and it's driving about 8% of GDP. Um, and it, that's about like 100, 100, almost $180 billion a year. That's as much almost as oil, mining, gas combined. This is not small potatoes. And that's just the data that we can see because they're incorporated as nonprofits. That doesn't include organizations like Patagonia or, or similar or friendly composting, which we just talked about. So the movement is really big. Um, and people want purpose. I think the pandemic has really drawn people back into what is important. You don't, you can't just go and sit at a job or stand at a job. They're really driving for something different. And so there's a movement in for-profit and non-profit and co-ops to really do organizations and businesses different. So whenever I'm speaking with a business, uh, because I have that consulting side of my business, you know, and, and there's different things that come up. One is, is this a passion of yours? Because uh, one fellow, his son was diabetic, so he wanted to give back to diabetes. And I said, that's, now is that quiet or is that business? And he says, what do you mean? And I said, well, we, as, you know, as someone who, who believes in being clever about most things, let's try to be anyway, uh, let's think about this. So there's a public facing, forward facing model, and then there's a private one. So is this something you want to be inherent in your business? Or is this something that you're giving personally and generously? Because those are distinctions that we need to make. The other one is, um, I, I do think about relevance. And, and this is just because I, you know, again, I volunteered some time as a big gone to the board and I've done different charitable things. And I'm not saying that to grandstand. I'm just saying I kind of know the space. And the other thing you have to think about is, is the relevance of the cause to your customer. So in other words, do people know about it or do you have to be part of the education of that said charity? Or do you, do you fundamentally, are you, 
you know, do a lot of people obviously would give to cancer, would give to Heart and Stroke Foundation, like some really well-known ones. But you have to understand relevance at, at sometimes because customers do rally and vote with their wallet if they understand, okay, Tom Shoes, another great one. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe explain the Tom Shoes for me because you smile when when I told you that uh, Tom Shoes for me is is one of the great examples of of social enterprise in my estimation. Yeah, so it's a for profit model. They receive so Tom Shoes is a shoe company, a global shoe company at this point, and they started this kind of one for one trend or or one of the first and biggest companies to do it. When you bought a pair of shoes, they would give a pair of shoes to someone that needed a pair of shoes. What they found actually when doing that over a few years is is it it didn't actually help. It really upset the shoemakers and markets in the countries they were giving the shoes. And they actually had to change their model um, to do more direct partnership as opposed to just giving the shoes. It did. So I give them all the credit for the humility and changing their their impact model. Um, but yeah, they faced criticism for quite a while. Uh, be, first it was celebration. Then it was like, <laughs> oh, wait. And then with all the humility, they did change their model. So yeah, good credit for them. That's interesting because in uh, Bill Gates was often talking about how tough it was to give away money. Like he said... A lot of people think that this is, you know, it's really easy to just write a check. But he said to to have impact, to make to whatever money you give, you want to make sure it's sustainable. You want to make sure it's actually helping. It's a hand up, not a handout. And for him, he's discovered how complex and complicated that process was. Hence the foundation's work. Yeah, I think the the more sustainable movement around this is less about the giving and the big stuff and more about the changing the everyday workings of your organization. And for an organization like Czech, I'm here where we're sitting, I'm sure there could be compost right here. I'm not sure if there is. It's not provided by the municipality, that's for sure. You know, partner up with a composting company that will get it out here. That's a small but committed and sustainable way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and have a very marginal increase in cost. Um, but it's a real commitment and it just becomes a part of like the everyday workings of the organization as opposed to a check here or there. It really sustainably lifts other organizations like Friendly Composting and others that, that can then build real long-term impact rather than you know, giving a check every so often. Right. So that opens the door to a conversation about direct impact fund, which is drive impact fund, drive it. Sorry. And, and what is, what is that fund and what, what is it doing? So thrive impact fund was started. We started it a year ago. It launched a year ago and purple is, is, a co-owner alongside Scale Collaborative, which is based out of Victoria. Similar company to Purple. And Thrive Impact Fund was started really to address the capital gap that, let's say, impact entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs or impact organizations really feel. And that gap is it can be shown in a few different ways. 
one of the most common and well talked about at this point is a gap in investment money going to women-led organizations. It, it's just not happening like it is for men. There's real gaps. And then you add in uh, people who are black, indigenous, any other person of color, the numbers drop even further. Then you add in a gap around strange incorporation models like nonprofits looking for financing to grow a business or, or a social enterprise. And traditional funders don't even really know how to understand that or analyze that. True. And a nonprofit board member isn't going to put their house on the line to support capital going into to support business growth inside the nonprofit. And they might not even have a house to put on the line to start with. Like there's privilege in even considering that there is, you know, finance security to securitize and uh, some capital going in. So that that's kind of parts of the gap. Um, and we've raised a little more than 2 million. We've started investing. We've made four investments so far um, with some more upcoming. And big credit or shout out goes to Interior Savings. They put three quarters of a million dollar investment into Thrive Impact Fund um, to really launch it here in the interior as opposed to, you know, the fund started out on the island. Purple is working alongside Thrive Impact, or alongside Scale Collaborative to really launch it here in the interior. Wow. So it, I find it very interesting about the, how traditional lenders uh, wouldn't understand that sort of giving. They, they wouldn't, it, it would, it wouldn't fit their filter at all. <laughs> yeah. Um, like angel investors that are putting capital into uh, smaller, like high growth companies, it, the way that social impact organizations are growing just doesn't fit the angel investing model that well. It needs to be more patient and slow. The growth expectations of, of typical angel investments are, are very high compared to what can be expected for the social sector. Um, further, you know, it's, it's sometimes not even that they the traditional funders like banks and credit unions don't, don't want to or don't understand that money should go into organizations like this. It's actually the Financial Institutions Act and some of the regulatory behind it, which restrict them from putting money mm. into these kind of different organizations that don't that don't kind of fit into the checkbox on the form. Right. Um, so by moving money outside of the traditional financial institution or a credit union, we can actually put it to work easier than they can with more flexibility and more patience because there's different rules that apply for exempt funds compared to financial institutions. So it would be advantageous if Purple was was somewhat looking at this because obviously you know the space, you uh, you might have more of an idea or a concept of, of what the outcome could look like yeah and what the support the the leaders of the organization need and actually finding these organizations because most of them they don't even consider trying to get external capital because it's just kind of like trying to open a, a locked door yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's really important both us and scale collaborative have feet on the street in community working with these organizations every day it just made sense for us to collaborate and and try to help fill that capital gap 
So I want to chat more about some some local examples and uh, and off air you you asked me about second slumber and and uh, for those that that don't know it was um, it was a project that came out of really an inherent need and what I mean by that is a hundred day sleep trial is what you know any online mattress company offers and within that hundred days let's say the uh, the person, the, the spouse doesn't like it, maybe uh, too firm, too soft for that person, and or sometimes they even get shipped poorly. And, and that does happen because people are involved. So anyway, that has created a logistical problem last year. 50,000 perfect mattresses hit the landfill. Uh, so we decided to turn that into a, a reverse logistics solution. Hmm. And so we approached a few mattress companies and, and they said, yeah, please, I mean, save us, save us this $150. It'll, it'll cost to take that mattress to a landfill that, that perfect product goes to a new forever home and we become a quasi adoption agency. It's wonderful. Um, and, and as such though, what I've found, and this is something I chatted with you about is it is tough, um, because you know, I feel like it's a very purpose-driven organization. We're reducing waste. We're allowing families and, and immigrants and single moms and a whole host of people access to product. Mattress companies are overjoyed because we're handling this this problem, this massive problem for them. But again, at the end of the day, we want to write a check to Canadian Mental Health and and that and <laughs> and not pay yourself, but you write a check. That's something we chose to do. But in a lot of organizations, obviously, they have to put food on the table and everything else. And don't get me wrong, I do too. But this is an overwhelming purpose organization for me. And and that's why it feels good, even though it's tiresome and, and there's days when it sucks awfully. But there's for the most part, it's 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 a win. So do you come across that a lot of, of organizations that are just struggling? Like it, it, it truly is, uh, the battle is real and, and you must go in there sometimes uh, as a cheerleader going, you're doing good work. We just have to stay the course. Like, uh, what does that look like for you? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yes, pretty much every day. So y- the challenges that you're working through are really typical uh, for social entrepreneurs and social purpose leaders. Um, Some of the sort of trends that I can hear in what you're talking about are, you know, one of the first ones is to really get clear on your impact model. And as an example, is the environmental impact the primary impact you're trying to achieve or is it getting money to CMHA to work on mental health issues? Because those are a little bit divergent. Not saying you should stop sending checks to CMHA. There's like deep and critical needs around mental health. But what's your primary impact here? And how do we balance that with with a sustainable financial model? So most organizations really have to spend quite a bit of time and I don't mean like, let's think about it for two months. I mean, let's work on it for a year or two years to actually really narrow in what the impact you want to have is and work backwards to plan out and understand what activities 
actually contribute to that intended impact. Mm. And that, there's a global tool set for that. It's kind of like a strategic plan in, in typical business or even in, in nonprofit sector, but there's, there's a tool around that called a theory of change. And it really maps out, let's get clear on our intended impact and work backwards to understand what activities do we expect will actually contribute to that. So that's one of the first pieces that, or most common things that we work on with organizations is to get some clarity on around that. And sometimes the best clarity is what can I say no to? Right. Well, and it's a tough question because, you know, the, uh, the business model is truly handling. So I, we, we've always thought of this as a, a mattress companies is moving through the water in a boat creating this tremendous wake they're they're making all this money for shareholders the company is doing very well on the bottom line yeah we have 20 percent return but that's just part of the wake of a of a capital company and then we come along and we we're working in that space behind them going we got this you keep going we will handle this so that is part of the organization is we're handling this reverse logistics but it, it raises an important point Canadian Mental Health Association was was brought up because uh, my partner had a friend commit suicide based on poor mental health, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's a very passionate part of the company. So, you know, what again, I, I see the I see the question you're raising, which is which one, you know, where where are you going to go? Where are you going to put your resources? And and that's a tough one. Yeah, and and. Perhaps it's not about a choice between one or the other, um, but in every organization, you know that financial sustainability is critical. So, CMHA would rather have, I am sure of it, less money from you as long as it was long term and consistent because you were paying yourself enough to keep doing this. Right. Because if you don't keep, if you don't pay yourself enough to keep doing it, the checks that you write are cool, but I'm sure they'd rather have it for the next twenty years. That's a good point, actually. And mm-hmm. further, maybe checks are good, but they're not actually enough to make a real difference. I'm not sure the size and scope of the checks you're writing or, or maybe could write in the future. But maybe where you consider adding into your impact model a bit more is, well, who, who receives these mattresses that are significantly discounted in price? And can we create a way to prioritize people or families or organizations that need mattresses that also have, you know, mental health uh, as part of their reality. Right. So can you prioritize the mattresses to go to affordable housing providers that need discounted mattresses? And I think that's the, uh, that's an excellent point because, um, you know, and, and again, in a first year, you you start understanding channels you start understanding who does what and you start to understand okay who who fundamentally would look after a shelter in say toronto or or in st john's or something like that where we have twins and and singles because the other part of our model and and this is for people if they see an ad for a mattress company that says donate your mattress it's okay that's a little bit of a fallacy because most of you order kings and queens and guess what shelters don't want those they they actually 
they, they don't have the space. So anyway, that that's another burr in my saddle. But uh, anyway, it is it is fundamental where we're starting to learn, okay, when we get a single, when we get a twin, when we get a double, we actually have an audience for that and there's appetite for that. And then we start seeing, okay, where can we place these? And we're starting to understand that space too. So it's a good point. How can you use those resources and, and, and use them in, in that direction too? Yeah, you kind of need to sit in the problem for a while to understand where your your efforts are best utilized to create the most impact. And again, a check might not actually be the best place. You might have more capacity inside your organization that would offset real costs for CMHA, as an example, that would far exceed the check that you're capable of writing. Hmm. It is a good point. Now, you're working with a, a company uh, locally, and, and speaking of the homelessness space, um, maybe just chat a bit about a local example. And, and you know, I, I don't know anything about the company, but uh, it's, it's a very special case. Do you want to just relay some of the information? Yeah, so let, let's not dive into politics on, on this show. Yeah. I don't think that's the nature of it, but needless to say, Pretty well, every municipality and every council candidate and mayoral candidate is talking about community safety at this point. And there's some important contributions that the social sector and social enterprise can make to contribute to solutions to this, but not solve it. The, these problems aren't solved by one thing or one person or one organization or one policy change. They are deep and entrenched, and it's going to take many, many hands to contribute tribute to meaningful solutions to a system change. So an example uh, locally, and there, there's there's quite a few, but one would be People Employment Services. Um, they are a small nonprofit, very small at this point, and they put uh, people with lived experience in homelessness through some training and employment readiness. And they then employ these people to do work. And in the local case, for example, the city of Kelowna has a contract with them to staff the washroom at the bus loop downtown. And it's so it's literally for us by us. And it's a it's a gathering point for lots of people downtown at the bus loop and the washroom is literally staffed by the people wow and they're being paid to do that work um that sort of example exists um with ask wellness up in kamloops they have contracts with the municipality to pick up sharps and litter that's happening in Penticton, it's happening in Kelowna, it's happening really all over the place. And so that's a sort of situation where if you expand it beyond staffing a washroom, uh, there's a great example down in Vancouver called Mission Possible, and businesses munis like municipalities, institutions are hiring these social enterprises that are employing people with barriers to employment to do work in community. That is um, fantastic. And, and recently I had on uh, Scott Lanigan, who's uh, 
uh, chair of Journey Home Society. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about how eye-opening it was to work on the plan for Journey Home with lived experience people. And he said, truly the insight and and their knowledge and and really putting a face to nameless people was uh, such an incredible jump for him. And, uh, and, and that's interesting to me because I know in a labor shortage market like we have, we actually, there's a lot of opportunity for this. And the more we know about it, the probably the better it is for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, despite popular belief, most of these people who don't have jobs actually want jobs. Yeah. And I, I do think it's uh, it's that important distinction for me, which is giving them a hand up and, and, and really trying to help make sure that, you know, and, and there's satisfaction when you do work, when you do a job and you get paid for that said job. Like there's, and I think purpose is, is a wonderful thing for a lot of people, for their mental health, for their sense of self, for their self-confidence, for all those things. And if we can give that, and that is one of the, the many steps, I'm sure, to raise themselves into a, a part of, of functioning in society, I, I think that's admirable. And I think it's, it's a big story. Yeah, and there's social enterprises doing that all over the region in small ways and way beyond this region in really big ways. Um, it's happening everywhere, all over the globe. And the, there's a transition, you know, it, it starts with a roof over your head, um, generally speaking, get them into housing and start with employment opportunities, not jobs. Like, hey, can you come on Tuesday and do this? Oh, you're having a good day? Why don't you join join the crew? Right. Um, Pace down in Penticton is doing it through electronics recycling and mattress recycling. Um, Ask Wellness is doing it up in Kamloops and Merritt and Penticton. People Employment Services is doing it here. And there are uh, up in Vernon, Venture Training has employment-based social enterprise as well. There are, they have a a bicycle shop. Um, It is happening all over the region and it's quiet, um, but it's real. Just because we're we're starting to uh, run out of time, I want to talk to. So there's business owners that listen to the Rick and Friends show, and thanks for doing so. What what advice would you give them if they were looking at potentially, maybe, looking at a social enterprise function for their business? So in other words, they're for profit, but they're thinking, okay, they're. I think we're missing the boat and I think it would feel better if we had more, more purpose for our organization. And, and again, I know a lot of companies that have social enterprise, but they don't tell anyone. Yep. (laughs) And I always tell businesses like it's okay to tell people because it's, it's actually telling other businesses to do this. Like it, it opens the door for, I think more opportunities. That's another thing entirely but what kinds of advice would you give people that are even looking at creating that that part of of their enterprise of of that social enterprise model um a few things like most for-profit organizations don't even resonate with the term social enterprise they're unlikely to maybe get there in terms of accepting that as like how they identify but maybe an impact venture or an impact company or 
or for purpose, for profit, that sort of language might work better. But the things I think to consider first is take a long-term view. Maybe you start with corporate social responsibility and checks going into community and some sort of volunteer days and that sort of thing. But I really urge uh, organizations and people to to bring it into the core of their business a bit more, take a long-term view of it and not have it corner a desk. That's like, that's the real transition. And some of the places to go with that is rather than starting something, just build a relationship with a a nonprofit as, as a good example, build a relationship with relevant nonprofits where you can constantly offer value rather than, uh, a check the checks are good too but the ability for an organization to contribute to social impact is so much more than the checks they can give after tax right okay and after profit um so that would that would be the the first piece is try to bring it central and make it really long term don't do it alone and a common place to start to look is in procurement who are you buying from Mm. Um, you don't have to change a lot. Just buy a little differently, whether it's compostable cups compared to plastic or local supplier versus, you know, multinational procurement is a really easy, normal practice in a company already. And you just, you know, embed some social procurement into the mix. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, I did hear the other day that, um, uh, our city of Kelowna has uh, procured some some uh, services not from in the community, so we'll talk to them about that for one. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean y- the city's doing a lot around social good, and and they can't buy everything local. Lo- local doesn't necessarily mean impact. I, ha- I have to say that you're letting him off the hook andrew and i'm not gonna let him okay oh no i i'm a big champion for what the city's doing we can pinpoint uh areas for improvement in every organization (laughs) well said sir well said uh very much been a pleasure of chatting about this and i I so hope to get you back on the program because uh, this is very engaging discussion and thanks for sharing your time. Yeah, I would love to come back and thanks for having me. What What a great experience.